I wanted to start small at that point. The the biggest property I'd ever done was like really large duplexes. I'd never done triplets or fourplets yet or any like true commercial multifamilies. So yeah, it was a conscious decision to start small. And I was trying to work with a different pool of investors that previously I hadn't really been able to work with one-on-one. It let me diversify my portfolio at the same time, right? I was really targeting a different tenant class, a different asset class than I dealt with before. It's been really beneficial. And one of the big reasons I've kept trying to spread out geographically is to diversify more and more. Hey, investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Hello, investment community. This is Garrett Wong, your host of the Investing to Win podcast. I just spent an amazing hour with Matt Lansborough. I'll call him a local real estate investor, but he's really not. I'm starting a mini series here. I'm going to interview some out of town investors on why Winnipeg or rather why Manitoba, why invest here. And Matt's story is really interesting with his journey. Fascinating. I'd like you to pay attention to his very purposeful path in not only how he transitions to other provinces for investing, but the diversification and the steps he takes in each market, not only with his asset class choices, but also how he makes his investors comfortable in a new market. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, investment community. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Garrett Wong. I'm your host. And today starting uh, a mini-series of what I call Why Winnipeg. And I have on the line with me virtually, uh, and we'll tell a side story about that, Matt Lansborough. Matt, how are you? Hey, Garrett. It's great to see, hear from you. Yeah. So, uh, so just a side story here uh, before we get going. Matt was actually supposed to be in my studio five minutes ago, called me last night in a panic and said, I don't want to mess you up, but, uh, but I need to be somewhere else on a plane. Uh, could we do this virtually? And uh, I do have the tech available for it. So Matt is actually in a rental car, uh, tethering his internet connection off of his phone uh, to do this podcast. Yeah, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about that that journey? Yeah. So, you know, as all your listeners will know, sometimes you got to strike when the iron's hot, when a good opportunity comes along. And uh, one of my marketing systems paid off finally. And I got a a call from a private seller who's in foreclosure and has a very, very tight deadline to get a deal done on a really, really good uh, set of multifamily properties in British Columbia, uh, which is pretty close to the home market where I first started doing real estate. So I kind of had to drop everything and and jump on this right away if I was going to, you know, get the opportunity to get these things tied up and under contract at a really uh, attractive price. And so, yeah, I've had to rejig my schedule a bit. And I actually flew from Winnipeg uh, to Vancouver Island at five o'clock this morning. And I'm now kind of in line waiting for the ferry so I can cross over to a different town and meet with the seller. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So audience, you're, you're getting this live. That's excellent. Okay, well, why don't we back up a little bit? I always like to uh, start with maybe telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, What's your story and your background? So uh, my background's not terribly exciting, but I'm I'm originally just a farm kid from southwestern Ontario. And I I stumbled into real estate investing kind of in my mid-20s in a really circuitous way. So I had actually, um, I'd gone to university to be a biologist and a professional forester. And had worked as one of several years. It was a great career. And I kind of bounced all over Canada and worked a little bit in Europe because of that. And then uh, settled on Vancouver Island. And after about a year of saving up, started listening to everybody's advice. I should buy into the market before it blew up anymore. And I bought a duplex and started house hacking. And and so at the time, I was working as an engineer and a forester. 
and really wasn't even in town that much. I was doing mostly remote work. I was gone 15 to 20 days a month, most months. And I was living with roommates and just living really cheap. And a, a private sale came along on a really nice ocean view duplex that needed a lot of work. And I bought it uh, really without doing anywhere near as much homework as I should have. And without a lot of research or knowledge uh, involved, kind of got lucky a little bit. But I started house hacking. I kept the tenants on one side, moved into the other side of the duplex with uh, my then roommate and uh, started fixing it up and fixed up one side, then swapped places with the tenants, fixed up the other side. And, you know, as I was doing that, I was doing more and more research and actually getting interested in, in real estate investing in a really serious way. And that property ended up working as a burr after all that as well. So what I was able to do after about a year and a half was refinance the property, pull out significantly more capital than I had put in and go buy another one. And I started doing this on repeat while working full time. So over the next couple of years, I did a few more deals and was building up a bit of a portfolio. And at the same time, getting really burnt out of my day job. And eventually I got to the point where I was starting to think about doing flips and was doing a little bit of wholesaling as well. And was starting to be approached by private investors about doing joint ventures on deals. Got really excited about that opportunity and decided to uh, just quit my day job as a forester and pursue this full time. So early in 2019, I uh, started my company, Dwell Logic Investing, and quit my day job. And it's all I've been doing ever since is, uh, you know, trying to build a portfolio uh, all across Western Canada. We do mostly multifamily rentals, but we do some bits and flips and wholesaling, private lending and stuff as well. And it's uh, it's been fantastic. It's grown tremendously. And it's let me live a, a really different and, and great lifestyle. Wow. Uh, forestry. Uh, I, I love hearing these origin stories because you never know uh, what skills you're bringing. Wow. Yeah, that, that's great insight. I, like I said, I love just where everybody comes from and those different skill sets. So you touched on real estate a little bit in your journey, but you know, what does the, the portfolio look like? What's the summary? How many units do you have? Uh, and you mentioned provinces. What provinces are you investing in currently? Yeah. So there's a bit of a story to that. I started out thinking I was just going to keep living in BC and just do rentals here. Just do small multifamily and single family burrs. At the time, there was a real sweet spot in the market for those where I was living on Vancouver Island. Um, and they were pretty easy to find those deals. And unfortunately, over the next couple of years, the market just kept rising and rising and cap rates got lower and lower as more and more people from Vancouver and Victoria realized how nice the uh, upper half of Vancouver Island actually is. And I got just priced out of the market, even though I was working with investors. It just became impossible to do proper bird type deals. And the flipping opportunity started to drive dry up as well. We were just going like every property, even um, private sales were going into like 20 person bidding wars. So at that point, my spouse, Justine, who's in the military, she was talking about relocating back to Winnipeg anyways for her job. And had a number of investors by then, and a lot of them had budgets in that fifty to hundred thousand dollar range. And the only way I could get them into a deal in BC was be to combine two or three of them together. But by going to a lower price point market like Winnipeg, um, I was able to do individual deals with each investor, and I was able to kind of sidestep the craziness of the BC market in 2019, 2020. So we kind of, we made the move and physically switched places. And I've kept doing deals in BC the whole time, um, but at a reduced rate. I went from doing you know four or five a year down to just one or two, but started doing a five plus deals a year in Winnipeg. And then uh, last year in 2022, we expanded to Alberta as well. So at the moment, we're sitting on a portfolio of four rentals you know, on Vancouver Island. I've bought and sold some here over the last few years, but we've got a, a core little group we're holding. And then I have 12 rental units in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I have another 12 in Red Deer, Alberta. And 
at the moment, I have another 12 uh, rental units under contract in Powell River, British Columbia. And that's where I'm going later today to do my due diligence walkthroughs on those properties. So hopefully a few weeks from now, I'll have tripled my uh, BC portfolio size again. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah, let, let me, let's back up for a second here. So you're in BC, you're getting priced out of the market. You mentioned your spouse and, and Winnipeg and having a transfer here, but had you had you looked at any other provinces or was this opportunistic for you because you guys were thinking about moving here? I, it was somewhat opportunistic. So I had already st- spent about a month researching different markets and Winnipeg was on the list as an option. I had also looked, I was really interested in parts of Alberta, still am. I was looking at Saskatoon and Regina, parts of Ontario where I'd lived in the past and was... It had a lower price point, but also I was I had some local knowledge. But Winnipeg was definitely an option. The price points were pretty good. Winnipeg has a lot going for it from an investor's point of view. Pretty strong regional market, lots of employment opportunities. And my spouse, Justine, had lived there before and really enjoyed it. So um, when work offered her the chance to move back, she was very keen on it. And I, at that point, was pretty keen just to go somewhere where I could keep growing, right? Because my business was kind of stalling out. I just wasn't getting the deal volume that I needed to to scale quickly. So we we took the leap and it, it turned out to, you know, be a great move. It's really been a game changer for us. Okay. So I think I remember meeting you a few years ago at a networking function and you had just basically come here. I remember this story. But I mean, tell us, tell the audience, like, how do you... How do you go to a different province and say, hey, I'm just going to start investing here? Like, what do those steps look like? So the first one is just a lot of research on my own time, like reading CMHC and Stats Canada reports, trying to get a feel for the local economy, and then trying to dig up any online content I could find on the different neighborhoods and real estate reports and looking at the like MLS brokerage statistics. And, st- and then from there, I started networking. So I joined the investing group we're usually a part of, NREIC, and, and started networking there and building some contacts and just asking, you know, you know, probably a really annoying number of questions to most people, trying to pick everybody's brain. But within, um, I think it's within six weeks of move, physically arriving in Winnipeg, uh, I had put two properties under contract, both of which I still own, actually. Yeah. And we started out, there was definitely a bit of a grind at first. And the volume was picked up significantly after the first year there. The first year in Winnipeg, we probably did five deals, maybe six. And I mean, last year we did 20 deals. So the, the volumes picked up significantly as we've built up local knowledge and a better network. We've been able to do a lot more. To start with, um, I was very cautious about what I was ready to pull the trigger on, just trying to be aware of the, the gaps in my knowledge, right? And leaning really heavily on other people in my network. But uh, now that I'm a lot more comfortable with Winnipeg, yeah, we've, we've been finding a lot more opportunities. So, yeah, I, I just, this is, like I said, this is a, a mini series on why Winnipeg, but I also want to, you know, um, interview interprovincial investors. So, you know, you're the first on the podcast. So I think everybody's going to get a lot of value from it. But I mean, what, let's talk about your first deal. Was it a flip? Was it a burr? Like, you know, how did, how, where, you, where did it come from? The first in Winnipeg, you mean? Yeah. 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 So the, the first one I did in Winnipeg was a single family burr. Uh, just a little two bed, one bath house in East Elmwood. Really nothing that special, except it was a private sale. And I was able to tie it up on a really good uh, purchase price and really favorable contract terms. And it wasn't. It really wasn't groundbreaking in any way. It was kind of a ho hum deal, to be honest. And we still hold it, and it cash flows well. We don't have. We were able to do 100% burr about eight months after taking possession. I think renovation took about three months to complete, and then we placed tenants um, month five. And then it was just the the delays of banking during the COVID era, getting the refinance done. So it wasn't. I think we bought the house for 122 thousand. And refinanced it for 188,000. So it was, I mean, it was a great deal. And it, it, at that time with those interest rates, it was cash flowing 
uh, almost $500 a month. I think we were around $470. That's come down a bit because of the, the rise in interest rates, but it's still by all means a profitable property. And we've been able to get the rents up since then as well. But I still have the original tenants we placed in it. Um, they're still there almost three years later. Yeah, that, that's, really, that's really neat. Would you say that you chose maybe a smaller burr? You say a ho-hum deal, but I mean, really, you don't want to go into a big, you know, $3 million, three-story walk-up deal either when you don't really know no. the market. Uh, I, I wanted to start small. At that point, the, the biggest property I'd ever done was like really large duplexes. I'd never done triplets or fourplets yet or any like true commercial multifamilies. So... Uh, yeah, it was a conscious decision to start small. And I was trying to work with a different pool of investors that previously I hadn't really been able to work with one-on-one because they just didn't have large enough budgets to do deals in BC. So it was a little bit of cons- a constraint, but kind of a blessing in disguise to focus on some of those cheap properties, for lack of a better term, those sub $200,000 purchase prices, because it gave me good exposure. And, and gave me more practice working one-on-one with joint venture partners. And it kind of, it let me diversify my portfolio at the same time, right? I was really targeting a different tenant class, a different asset class than I dealt with before. Um, and it's it's been really beneficial. To, and one of the big reasons I've kept trying to spread out geographically is to diversify more and more. It's definitely something I'm trying to pursue actively right now. So it's all well and good to, uh, you know, become an expert in one area and one type of deal and, you know, get really good and rinse and repeat. But I think when we focus on that to the exclusion of all else, we make ourselves really vulnerable to black swan events and changes in the market and just changes in what our renters or our end buyers are looking for as well. Yeah. I had a question here that came up as you were just answering that question. Um, And it has to do with your investors, your joint venture partners. So, I, I mean, knowing the Winnipeg market now, or maybe you've had two or three deals under your belt, you find that out of provincial investors, if you have some, uh, I'm assuming so, that are now, okay, I'm investing with Matt in Winnipeg. How much confidence does an out-of-province investor have to have when you're trying to get their money into a different province? Or do you find it's more advantageous to use a local investor that maybe is more comfortable within that own province? Honestly, so having done both now, on my end, I find it's much easier and smoother to use out-of-province investors than local. Um, And I actually get less pushback and opposition from out-of-province than I do in-province. Ironically enough, people from Winnipeg don't seem to be big believers in it. Um, (laughs) And vice versa, they're very keen to invest outside of Manitoba. And people from other Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia have been really keen to invest in it and diversify out of their home province and into a really different type of real estate market. It's a lot more stable. It has a lot less volatility. That's a really interesting perspective. I never thought about it that way. But yeah, I mean, I I could see definitely me being a a longtime Winnipegger, lifetime Winnipegger. You know, you don't know what your backyard is. And plus there might be the micromanaging part of it too. Oh, I know that area. I don't like it. Um, no, no, let's move to something else. Meanwhile, you're, you're evaluating deals on numbers and what makes sense, right? Not emotion. Yeah. And I'm also to a, to a, a deal lives or dies on the numbers, but I'm also speculating on to a certain degree on where I think the neighborhood is going to be five and 10 years from now. Know, and having an, an outsider's perspective on that can sometimes be helpful. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. But I mean, talk to me about bottlenecks. I mean, so you you said, you know, the first year you did a, a few deals, five, I think you said, and I, I think you said like 15 or something in your second. What are the bottlenecks? Is it deals? Is it contractors? Is it money? Like what what challenges would somebody have going into another province? For me, the biggest hurdle was finding reliable contractors and just access to enough capital to do the deals. Still to this day, I find I'm turning away some opportunities or trying to wholesale them again instead, just because I don't have the investor capital. Or, and this is more a thing that's come up more recently in 2023, is limited resources in my time. I haven't scaled quite to the point yet where I can justify having many staff 
And so I, at this point, I'm, I'm trying to transition away from being a one man army yeah. and starting to work with VAs and, and relying more on contract bookkeeping and whatnot. And that's great. But that, that's become a limiting factor. But I would say in 2021 and 2022, my biggest limiting factor was my team, like contractors that were available to take on the deals that I, contractors I was willing to work with, put it that way. Right. And then um, investor capital oh, and finding the right mitts of investors from different provinces that wanted to do different sorts of deals, right? So finding some investors that were really keen on doing flips, finding some that wanted to do for rentals of single families, multifamilies, different scenarios, right? And so it's taken me a few years to, to build up and properly vet a good core group of investors that are comfortable working with me and I'm comfortable working with them and who are comfortable and they're comfortable, you know, investing in the areas I want to invest in, right? Like I've, I spent the last, since 2019, I was trying to invest in Alberta and just had a terrible time finding an investor that was willing to back me on those opportunities, right? I don't know how many good multifamily burrs I had to pass on in Alberta before I finally connected with the right investor that was willing to back them. What challenges, like what concerns did they have? At that point, so when oil declined in 2016, that really kicked the Alberta real estate market in the teeth. Prices declined significantly. Rental rates declined quite a bit as well. Uh, and that created a lot of opportunity to buy at really good discounts. But there wasn't a clear timeline yet on when the recovery was going to happen, right? Meanwhile, the rest of the real estate and most of the rest of the country was booming. I mean, and so it made people really gun shy, most people anyways. And they were looking at the headlines seeing, oh, rentals are declining in Alberta. Uh, prices are down 15% in Calgary, 10% in Edmonton. There's a lot of doom and gloom. When, and elsewhere in the country, it was the opposite story, right? And I kind of looked at that as an investor as, okay, this is an opportunity to get in without a lot of competition and to tie things up at really good rates knowing that in a few years, oil is going to recover or some other factor is going to happen and the Alberta economy is going to bounce back. And then we're going to be in a really great position. We'll not only, you know, we'll be beyond being poised to strike. We're already in the market, have the local knowledge and the teams built up and some cash flow already from the properties we had. Um, and, you know, there's no sense crying over spilled milk. It, it just didn't happen. I, I couldn't make the connections I needed to make then. And in 20, early 2022, I finally was able to, and we were able to put together a really good project, which is now just in the refinance stage. So in terms of, it's really a confidence play then, right? With your investors, obviously you have to do your research, but you have to have and show somewhat of a track record, no different than, than Winnipeg, but you know, trying to branch out, research, 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 and then make sure that you know your numbers. Because again, it's all about the numbers, right? Yeah. And as much as anything, my investors are, they're investing in me and their confidence in, in my abilities as a project manager and an analyst, as much as they're investing in the actual property itself. On on paper, they're investing in a particular property or deal with me. But but the whole reason they're doing it is because I've earned their trust. Um, and that's really what makes or breaks it. Uh, and what I've found is trying to work with investors that have that attitude avoids a lot of conversations about, well, you know, I don't like this neighborhood or I've heard this city isn't that great. I think I'm going to wait for the next deal. And I end up, ended up working with a bunch of people who were essentially tire kickers and just nothing was ever quite good enough. There was always going to be a better opportunity next week. I could find a different deal that was going to be a better fit for them. And I was just wasting an outrageous amount of time vetting deals that no one was really interested in doing except me. You know, um, the audience can't see me smiling here. I know you can because this is an audio podcast, but we're on video here virtually. I'm smiling because what you just said is something I, I believe very strongly in. And that's when you're approaching an investor, what are they doing? Are, you know, there's something called relationships and there's also transactions, right? And what you just described, having an investor invest in you, the, the project, the active partner, whatever, whatever definition you want to, whatever term you want to use, as opposed to transactional, which is deal by deal. And ultimately, you, you, you know, real estate is a relationship business. 
you're trying to establish trust with your investor and that goes a long way and and you've just reinforced that it was just uh, i was just gonna say it was a mindset switch i needed to make to prioritize who i was working with and how i was pitching myself and the deals to them and, and since i figured that out it's been night and day i i think i want to dive deeper into this a little bit because i think investors especially aspiring and young and maybe starting out investors they're so desperate to do those deals, they turn them accidentally into transactions, right? And that's what they're trying to convince. And, and I really believe if we're here to educate, and that's why I'm doing this podcast, trying to get that mindset, like you said, believe in yourself uh, and being able to sell yourself as the product, not because this particular deal makes X percent in X neighborhood. Maybe talk a little bit about how you had to uh, do that mindset switch. So a lot of it was born out of frustration, really, to be perfectly honest. But it really came from, like I said, me having a lot of conversations with people who were just passing. They were willing to invest. They were keen to do it. But they didn't quite have the confidence to just trust me when I said it was a good deal or to believe me that based on the metrics alone. And they were very location-oriented. And I had to go back and adjust the way I was pitching deals and just communicating with investors in general and put a lot less emphasis on the location or the neighborhood and and a lot more emphasis on the metrics of the deal itself and how it was going to position us portfolio-wise in the bigger picture, or, and especially in the bigger picture of where else we were holding assets, right? And how this was going to balance out the risks of one property in this province, well, you know, let's diversify into a totally different type of asset class or really different target tenant profile and this other deal. You know, and then we're not so reliant on one part of the market, right? Geographically and within real estate itself, right? Different assets, different tenants, different strategies. And when I shifted the focus on just talking about opportunities and making things very much like metric focused, that was a total game changer. And it, it also came with experience on my end. By the time I figured that out, I had a lot more deals under my belt. And I didn't, I wasn't putting so much pressure on myself to hit the next milestone, you know, do 10 deals, get hit this cash flow number per year, do so many flips a year. I was very um, you know, milestone oriented at first. I felt like I really needed to build this body of work and prove myself on a certain number of deals so that I could more people would trust me and I could then access more capital to do the bigger deals, like bigger commercial multifamily deals, which I was most interested in doing. And to a certain extent, that was true. I needed to build up a track record and a reputation and a certain amount of experience to get there. Um, But it also, I could have gotten there a lot faster had I put the emphasis on a little bit different uh, communication style. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital, or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. As, as many people know, I'm getting back to my first love here, which is, you know, investment real estate. Um, I still have the property management company, but I'm being very purposeful about what, how I want to spend my life. Walk 
our audience through what it's like to have a brand new investor and that first deal and okay fine you let's let's skip past the fact that you've been able to convince them now you've done one deal with them talk about how how much how much easier it is when you present the second deal and then the third deal and then the fourth deal much easier there's so much more comfort and confidence and there's um i think just a lot of second guessing on their part and i find that everything is just smoother and a lot of times I'm the one reminding them to actually read the prospectus, read the pro forma, make sure they understand what they're investing in. And because some of them after three or four deals seem to, they really put the emphasis on just me. If I say it's a good deal, they'll trust me. They're just trusting that if I say it's an opportunity, it's a good opportunity and that it's just worth doing. They don't want to miss out. I think part of, Growing my group of investors to a certain size too has meant that sometimes if people don't respond to the email within a day or two, they miss their chance. And someone else pipes up first and says, yep, I really want to be a part of that. I'll fund the deal. And that kind of fear of missing out has changed things as well. And that there's no way to get there except with experience and time, right? And, And building the group of people you're working with. Yeah. I mean, you you're very purposeful. Um, it seems like everything you're doing here, what is the the bigger goal? Uh, I mean, how many, maybe not how many properties, but w- what is your long-term vision like for five or 10 years with you as a professional real estate investor? So the goal is to focus more and more on commercial multifamily properties and still use single family flips. That stream of active income is really nice to help scale things at a certain level. But the big goal is to build a very well-diversified portfolio of residential multifamily properties spread across Western Canada. And there's a few other provinces elsewhere I have my eye on, but it'll probably be at least two years till we try and expand to another province entirely. Have some my eye on more markets within provinces we're already operating in, within Manitoba, Alberta, and, B- and British Columbia especially, where I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. And I'd like to build up a portfolio in the, you know, hundreds of units, eventually, you know, break a thousand and, and, um, and build a, a central team on my end that's dealing with a lot of the admin and management, of course, but really spread a wide net portfolio wise and touch a lot of different points in the market geographically and in different asset types. And once we've built a certain amount of cash flow and have a certain amount of equity in our residential portfolio. The plan is to then um, pivot again and never stop doing residential multifamily, but also to spread more into misuse properties and other types of commercial real estate, office, agricultural, warehouse, self-storage, wherever there's opportunities elsewhere. And I think long-term, if we're going to keep putting the emphasis on diversification, eventually we need to diversify out of the residential category entirely as well oh spread there um some of the first real estate deals i actually did it before and at the same time i was as i was house hacking my first duplex or agricultural and timber land type deals that i was doing helping put together in a professional capacity as a forester as a consultant for large-scale real estate investors and that was eye-opening as well and helped kind of spur it kept me motivated to keep on the path I was on with my house hacking project and duplexes that, you know, if I could build up a certain amount of net worth, I could then start and tackle these other types of deals that I was being a part of as someone else's employee, but I could see the numbers that were there and the opportunities that were being created on these big um, timber management, agricultural and land development deals. And eventually I'd like to get there and get kind of come full circle back to that but no longer be someone else's consultant, but be doing the deals myself as the entrepreneur. But we're, we're several years away from that. Yeah, no, I, I am very amazed because you've got this big picture. You say that you got into real estate kind of accidentally, but you're very purposeful about it. The diversification that you have done in Winnipeg and you know uh, some of the other things that you've described, would you say that's intentional to learn a market? A burr, a flip, two bedrooms, small. Like, is that intentional? Yeah. 
Very much so. So I made a point, the last deal we did in Winnipeg, I was purposely looking for a property that was going to attract lower income tenants. I wanted to add to the tenant mitts some more, and this is going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but some more blue collar workers, right? And some, and have a project that was tied into some affordability initiatives, partly for some marketing benefits, but also because it was a part of the total tenant class in the city that I just wasn't exposed to at all. Oh, and I thought there was a lot of potential, still think there's a lot of potential in Winnipeg for those um, smaller one and two bedroom apartments to appreciate from a rental rate point of view, you know, especially if they're strategically renovated and, and in certain neighborhoods. And that I think has proven true so far over the last year. We've My predictions are mostly coming true. You know, but yeah, there's been some conscious decisions to do one deal over another as much for the diversification play. So, okay, we have two duplexes in this neighborhood already. Why don't we do this really high-end single-family rental in a different neighborhood to kind of spread ourselves out a bit and, again, mitts up the tenant profile? So we're not just relying on marketing to one type of person and, and collecting rent from one type of person that works in one industry, right? It's all well and good to, to get a system figured out and, and build a base that way. But I think we, we make ourselves vulnerable to uh, market disruptions if we're completely reliant on it. And part of the reason that I've done that is, you know, I came to Winnipeg during the COVID pandemic, right? And I was seeing, especially in British Columbia, a lot of landlords getting a lot of trouble. Well, they, a lot of people had pivoted in 2018 to 2020 to short-term rentals from long-term rentals. And they'd invested a lot in re-renovating buildings, Furnishing them with really high-end furnishings, um, signing contracts for you know 20, 25% of revenue with these short-term management companies. And then COVID happened, and there was almost a year where they weren't allowed to rent them out to people, right? It was basically dead in the water. And while there was still rental demand, people weren't moving. And, and it was actually pretty difficult for a few months there to take an empty unit and rent it out to long-term tenants, even though you could rent it out furnished. And there was allegedly all this demand, excess demand for rentals in British Columbia. There was a period where it was really hard to do anything with a rental you had. And, and they're expensive to hold at those price points. Well, lessons learned. Yeah, I think diversification for any investor, even not in real estate, right? I mean, you don't just want to be in the stock market. You should be investing in all different types of, of, of things and those asset classes. So you touched on the, the lower income um, opportunities and just trying to experience, and I have a lot of experience with this with my management company, as you know, just, you know, people who don't pay rent, people who maybe trash a place, maybe there's squatters and there's copper piping and electrical being ripped out of vacant properties and um, different things like that. I, I, yeah, I respect your decision for purposefully trying to learn about that. But that kind of segues into one of the questions I wanted to ask you. In terms of challenging challenges that you had investing in Winnipeg, why don't you tell the audience about, like, did you have challenges uh, with financing in Winnipeg compared to maybe uh, in BC? Not so much the mortgage financing side. What I found challenging was the insurance side. And it took me a little while to find um, the right insurance broker that was local to Winnipeg to work with to solve those challenges. I just wasn't getting competitive quotes. And until I built, until I had a few units in Winnipeg, it was hard for me to bundle properties and, and get any, negotiate any real savings from standard market rates. And that was, to a certain degree, just um, a cost of doing business I had to deal with. What about rent control? Um, obviously, that is probably one of the, especially if you're going to be transitioning into multi. But I mean, I just met with uh, a potential client uh, like literally two hours ago um, from Quebec. And he was saying like, you know, they have lease buyouts, $30,000, dollars $50,000 per tenant out there just because the laws are so crazy. What kind of research uh, do you have to do um, in order to 
go interprovincially when you're you're investing it with respect to rent control. Extensive research, unfortunately, and it's very tedious. The one redeeming factor is it's all legislation based, and that legislation is all free to view on the internet. Right? It's easy to find. Um, you just have to dedicate the time to sitting down and, and wrapping your head around each province's legislation and the differences between them. And the short answer is Winnipeg is kind of, or Manitoba is kind of in the middle of the pack. If you were to rate all the Canadian provinces on how landlord friendly they are, we do have rent control. It's very frustrating to deal with, but it's not nowhere near the level of some other provinces. So some places like Ontario and Quebec especially is one where I'm really not interested in investing there, to be honest, not until the regulations change. Other people can have at it. I don't need those headaches. Um, especially coming from the West. British Columbia is much more landlord friendly than even Manitoba is. Alberta is probably the pinnacle where it's not quite full on contract law, but it's awfully close. And it just, it it removes a lot of obstacles to our business as landlords. And it gives us a lot more flexibility when problems arise or to deal with unique tenant situations. We have a lot more cards in our hand in uh, certain jurisdictions. Okay. What about, you mentioned challenges with contractors. Now that you know what you know, going into a different province, what strategy would you suggest to find a contractor uh, to do whatever you, you need to do? I mean, you don't know anybody. You have to rely really heavily on referrals from other investors. That That's the system I found that, that has been the most reliable is that, um, if there's another investor that seems like they, they know what they're doing and you know they're, they're consistently putting together good deals, the contractors they're working with are the ones you want to work with. And that's hard info to get sometimes. You know, And I'm guilty of it too. When I get a really good contractor, I really don't want to share their contact info because I don't want them to be too busy to keep working for me. Right? Absolutely. I want them to succeed and grow, but I also want them to be available for my jobs, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a double-edged sword a little bit. I mean, you want to give back, but yeah, it's hard, uh, especially breaking into a market. Let's transition on to management a little bit. Are you managing the portfolio yourself over like now three provinces? So I self-manage my Manitoba portfolio right now because it's local to me. Um, Alberta and British Columbia, I rely on property managers. In BC, I've been using property managers since 20, early 2019. So that, that system is very comfortable. There's some people I've been working with for quite a while now, and they do a tremendous job. And Alberta is the same. But that was, there was never any consideration to me self-managing those. I worked really closely with the property manager we hired on tenant placement, because I think that really makes or breaks it, especially when you're leasing up a whole multifamily project from the ground up. So I've worked hard on building a sort of common standard regarding tenant placement and, and how we communicate with tenants. And that I work really hard on communicating with property managers when they get onboarded. And I found that prevents a lot of problems. But yeah, probably in the next year or so, I'll stop self-managing even in Manitoba. If the portfolio grows much bigger there, or I get keep doing deals like I'm trying to do now in British Columbia, this deal, if it happens, it's going to require me to be physically present in BC for a good chunk of this year. And that that may mean that I need to offload the management side of things elsewhere. It's always been in the plan that at some point I would step back from it entirely. And we're getting close to it now. And then I have mixed feelings about it. Um, There's some days where I'm really, really keen to give it up. And there's other days where I'm really glad I'm the one dealing with these situations. And just because I know I, it would be tough for a manager, right? They'd have to be, they would be coming to me for advice or feedback on how to handle it. Whereas I can just, I can cut out the middleman, right? And just make a decision and see it through. But it's not, not a sustainable approach forever. As the business and the portfolio scales up, I, I'm going to have to give that up. Well, you mentioned one man army, right? And uh, I mean, do you either spend your time trying to qualify and get more deals so you can grow your portfolio for you and your investors, or you deal with tenants that are skipping out on rent and complaining about a toilet not flushing, right? Yeah, and it's getting to the point where I just don't have the time to be scheduling 
repair contracts and, and maintenance work myself. It's, um, it's not even so much like tenant conflict. It's just the, the day-to-day tasks of, of managing a portfolio, right? That, and you're right. It, it's, you know, there's some high value tasks that really only I can do in the business, especially at this point, raising capital, putting together new acquisitions and, and they bring a lot more value overall than the, the day-to-day management tasks. Yeah. Like how much are you really saving versus the potential profit? What what tips then would you give to investors that are using property managers either in their own backyard or in another province? Uh, how do you uh, how do you make it successful in that relationship? So I think it's really important at the beginning when you first start working together to put a lot of emphasis on standards, how you're going to communicate with each other and with tenants, what is going to be an absolute deal breaker for you in terms of vetting tenants, tenant profiles. I've definitely been guilty of under communicating my expectations before and, and putting some emphasis on making that really clear, I think has helped. And then when you're working from a distance, it's easy to get out of the loop, right? And not know what's happening. And I think the best remedy to that is to schedule regular meetings to get updates. So my property managers know that on certain time intervals, we're going to have a scheduled phone conversation and they're just going to bring me up to speed on everything that's happened, no matter how boring and tedious the minutia is, who called, who had what questions, what tenants are complaining about what, what tenants are happy about proactive work we did, what do we have coming up maintenance-wise over the next six months, like what's on the plan, what do we need to add or take off that plan. We kind of talk through everything and it typically takes 20 to 30 minutes to you know just talk with say my alberta property manager who's managing 12 units for me right now he and i talk once a month right even if it's just a quick you know set of three emails back and forth saying hey has any the plan changed maintenance wise and then that's since we talked last you know want you know follow up and let me know that oh this contractor was really good the lawn guy isn't doing such a great job i think we got to look for a different contractor there you know these tenants are working out great i really think we want to send them an early renewal notice try and lock them down for another year these other tenants are not so great and they're really being kind of a headache on my end i think we don't want to renew with them or if we do renew we want to renew at a much higher rate kind of compensate us um and those conversations it's easy to put them on the back burner, but when you schedule them and they're just, they're non-negotiable, we're going to talk once a month or once every six weeks, whatever the interval is, putting them in my calendar and in their calendar and just creating the uh, opportunity to have those discussions and forcing it keeps everybody on the same page. And then there's no surprises. I love it. You know, I, I think I, I just actually wrote down a note. Um, because my other business being in property management, I don't, we try to over communicate, but it's always on the smaller level, right? I think I can take a page out of that and, and sit down or my staff rather with every investor and at regular intervals and just talk about the bigger picture. Um, because like you said, um, you're creating relationships here and um, it's no different. Um, so yeah, that, that is great stuff. Yeah. And from a property manager's point of view, to a certain degree, I'm a bit of a micromanager because I'm sending them an email once every six months with a maintenance plan for the property, right? What I anticipate coming out, right? I'm not relying on them to tell me when the windows or the gutters need to be cleaned or a reminder that, hey, this tenant says they're going to move out in six months. We should expect to be repainting the unit or we know there's a bad piece of flooring we need to lift up and replace. I have those plans for every unit and I sit down and periodically update myself and then I pass them on to the property managers and get feedback from them on whether they think it's appropriate or not. In some ways, I'm probably over communicating with them compared to a lot of their other clients, but I seem to get good results. So you got to keep doing it at least for now. You know what? Over communicating in a very structured and respectful way that you're speaking about, I think is great. You know, I, I wish more of my clients did that as well. So we're we're almost out of time. I can't even believe how how quickly the time has gone, but that's that's how the podcast goes. And you know this question is coming. I didn't have to prepare you for it because I ask every guest this question, and I want to hear what Matt Lansborough has to say. 
So this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? For me, winning means achieving my long-term goals with the portfolio. For some people, that's just going to be getting X dollars a month in rent, rental cash flow coming in. For others, it's going to be creating a certain amount of equity in these properties or building a portfolio they can pass on to their heirs one day, creating generational wealth. For some people, it's um, you know fits and flippers. They're just looking to create to do so many deals a year and, and turn these houses over and create a lot of active income in the short term. I think that's great too. I wish I did more of it. Um, whatever your goal is, I think it's really important to have a really clearly defined goal and know where you want to get to, right? And then you can reverse engineer your path to get there with real estate investing. And whether it's a certain net worth number, certain monthly income number, diversifying your income from just one or two streams into multiple streams, you know, from different types of real estate investing and different portfolio locations, whatever your goals are, I think what's most important is you have them really clearly defined and a pathway to get there. And it's okay if the pathway changes a lot along the way, you're going to learn and adjust, and maybe your goals will adjust as well. But I'm very metric based and I track those really carefully. And I think that that's what really drives me. I, I love that answer. Um, I have, it's almost like you've listened to some of my episodes because that's exactly what I say. Reverse engineer your goal. I love it. Well, that is a fantastic place to stop. I, I like to honestly thank you for taking the time, being in a rental car. You know, the internet held up. So it, it's been great. Appreciate you taking the time, the sacrifice, and uh, definitely good luck on the deal. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the uh, input. It's uh, always nice to talk to another investor. We, we're kind of guilty of living in our own little silos too often. 100%. All right. Well, take care. Good luck. And we'll see you when you land back in Winnipeg. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Matt. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to win is not only about helping you to win more, but win actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.